the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway on this Thanksgiving special. I'm joined now by Derek Robertson. Derek is a new writer, new to the show, first-time guest on the Hugh Hewitt Show. I read a piece of his in Politico magazine a couple of days ago, holding it in my hand here if you're watching on the Salem News Channel, the bizarre mildness of Let's Go Brandon Fest. And so I tracked down Derek Robertson. Good morning, Derek. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Morning, Hugh. Thanks for inviting me. When I have a first-time guest on, I run through the same ritual of trying to get the sort of GPS on their politics and their uh, uh, 311 info. Where were you born and how old are you? I was born in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm 32 years old. Uh, where did you go to school? Uh, I went to undergrad at uh, Wayne State University in Detroit, and then I did a uh, master's degree at Northwestern University. Are you a Medill guy? I am, yes. Yeah, another Medill Mafia. There are lots of Medill Mafia running around <laughs> town, and I often talk to them, whether it's Del Wilbur or Guy Benson. I mean, there are literally thousands of you. What was uh, your concentration at Medill? Uh, so I was on the magazine journalism track, uh, appropriately enough. Oh, very good. Uh, high school, you didn't tell me. When I say, when I, it's always a trick of mine to ask, where did you go to school? And everyone always tells me their college. They never tell me their high school. Which high school did you go to? Uh, Grand Blank High School, which is in Grand Blank, Michigan, uh, just a few miles, actually, from where Let's Go Brandon Fest was. I gathered that. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, in college at Wayne State, what was your major? History. And what was your favorite class and what was your favorite professor's name? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, my favorite class was uh, the first of my series of early modern British history courses, which were all taught by a great professor named Eric Ash, who was a great mentor to me, helped me conduct undergraduate research, which is something that Wayne State does very well. Uh, I, I have very fond memories of that. So you're, you're read in British history? Yes. Oh, that is terrific. That's why I just had Andrew Roberts on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago. His terrific new book, The Last King of America, about George III, I recommend to you. Uh, tell me what your summer jobs were in uh, in college. Uh, that's I had a I had <laughs> quite the series of them. Uh, my first ever job was working at a video game store. Um, and then I worked at a call center, a coffee shop. I was a dishwasher for a brief, brief period of time. Uh, those are the most pseudo memorable ones. And then after Medill, where did you go? Give us your career path to become a Politico magazine contributing editor. And you were also a contributing writer, I guess. And you were also, uh, you write for The Atlantic and The Ringer and other places. Where did you go after Medill? Yeah, so I uh, started off actually as an intern at Politico. I went through their terrific uh, Politico Journalism, excuse me, Politico Journalism Institute program, which is sort of a boot camp for young journalists. 
Uh, they hired me on as an intern at the magazine after that, and I stayed on for a while before trying. And then I went to get some, I wanted to get some other experience, uh, you know, outside the Beltway, and I, I covered state politics in Lansing, Michigan for a brief period of time. Uh, I worked at Indianapolis Monthly, the city magazine down there in Indianapolis for about a year, and uh, now I am just uh, uh, committed to writing full-time. Okay, now that doesn't add up to 10 years. If you get out of Wayne State at 21 and you're 31 now, I always, I really, I couldn't find anything about you. Otherwise, I would have done the research. There's no bio of you at Wikipedia. So you go from Medill to Politico. You're an intern at Politico. Then you become an employee at Politico. How long did you stay at Politico and when did you leave? Before the 2016 election or after? Um, I actually got, so I took sort of an unconventional path to journalism. Um, I took some time off during college, which is the time during which I did some of those odd jobs I was describing. So I didn't actually graduate until I was a little bit older. And then I went directly into um, grad school when I was, uh, if I remember correctly, 26 or 27. Uh, So that was, you know, about five years ago. Um, And I was at Politico from the fall of 2017. So post Trump's election until the winter slash spring of 2019. So about a year and a half. And then off to Indianapolis and other places. That's correct. You're now back in the Beltway like me? No, I'm actually living in uh, Ann Arbor right now. Oh, you poor man. Are you going to be there for the game this weekend? <laughs> um, no, I'm actually going uh, up north. Uh, my my father has a cabin up in the remote reaches of the state, and uh, I will be escaping the, the madness of that. Will you be? Uh, is he a youper? Uh, uh, yeah, he actually lived um, in Erica as a child for a period of time. Okay, so, you know, we got real Michigan roots here. I am a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School, but I'm from Ohio, Derek, so I hate all things related to the Wolverines. And I've been in the house, the big house, for an Ohio State win. But are you a sports guy? Do you like sports? I love sports. I, I write about them somewhat frequently, yes. And which parts, what, what are your favorite Joneses? I gather you're a Lions fan from uh, the bizarre madness of uh, mildness of Let's Go Brandon Fest. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a I'm a uh, Detroit sports fan for the most part. Um, I follow Northwestern's uh, football and basketball. Team. Oh, you poor man! I know. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster ride. I my, my girlfriend always teases me that uh, it would be, I, my life my quality of life would be much higher if I just picked at least a single team that won more often than they lost. But you're well, right. did you watch the Lions Browns game on uh, Sunday? I did not. I was actually too busy uh, writing my most recent article. It was an act of mercy, I guess, by my editor. Oh, it was. But although they came close enough to make you think maybe they would win. I think you're going to become the worst football team in history at 0-16 and 1. At least I'm hoping so, because the Lions and the Browns own the 0-16 title. Right. I would like to have someone else at the top of that list. All right. Um, what is your career ambition? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm quite happy with what I'm doing right now, but my, I guess my ultimate ambition would be to continue writing, uh, broaden the, the base of publications that I write for. I would like to write uh, books. Um, I'm trying to develop a few ideas for them right now. Um, yeah, that, that's about it. So you have got um, a number of projects cooking. Now I get into my standard questions for first-time sure. guests. What book are you reading right now? Right now, I am reading uh, The Deep Places, Ross Douthat's memoir of uh, chronic Lyme. And uh, have you finished it yet? Not yet. I'm about halfway through. I just picked it up a couple of days ago. What do you think about it? I've read it. I've interviewed Ross about it. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I like it. He's such an evocative writer. And there's something uh, you can, the skill with which he sort of does, you know, I guess you call it polemic in his columns, 
um, I think that what, what sets him apart as a columnist is what makes the book a joy to read, which is that he's just like a very evocative writer. Um, he does his research, pays a lot of attention to detail. He didn't take himself too seriously. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting take on a subject that I didn't think I would find myself so compelled by. At the end of it, I wanted to evacuate Connecticut, and I told him as much uh, because I don't want anyone to get Lyme disease. Let me ask you about um, the book is really about suffering and religious faith when you uh, scrape away. Have you suffered? Yes. <laughs> How so? Um, <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's uh, trying to uh, be judicious here. Uh, I've had my share of financial suffering and my life, emotional suffering. Um, I've never think you know, uh, thankfully never had a serious, uh, illness like, like Ross writes about. Um, I'll, yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful for not having to have experienced that acute level of suffering. It's interesting. Um, I didn't, I expect you to deflect what Ross's book is great about is he doesn't deflect. Uh, and he, he actually dives deep into his own narrative. I told him I would be profoundly uncomfortable doing that. But this is an interview. The only other thing I know about Derek Robertson is the podcast that you did with the realignment guys. And oh, you yeah. mentioned having been in therapy. How long yeah. and how productive was it? So it's funny. I, uh, I did a stint of it uh, a couple of years ago uh, for about six months. That was very unproductive. Um, and then I realized uh, after... Uh, I, I had this sort of epiphany that um, therapy is not terribly productive if you aren't uh, completely candid during it. So I returned to it about a year ago with that mindset and uh, have been doing it ever since. And it's been quite productive, actually. Have you watched Ted Lasso? Uh, a little bit of it. I've seen the first season. I haven't seen the second season yet. Season two is all about therapy. Now, I've never spent a minute in therapy. I am, uh, uh, you know, I'm simply never going to be there. But. Uh, that's just who I am. And other people go and Ted Lasso is really an explanation of why people ought to. I would recommend it to you. Um, have you read The Looming Tower? Yes, I have. What did you think of it? I, I loved it. Lawrence Wright is a writer I deeply, deeply admire. Actually, uh, I, I bought that book for my younger brother for Christmas a couple of years ago, and he, he really enjoyed it. And we've had some great discussions about it. Excellent choice. Did you get have you read Getting to Clear? Yes, that is. Uh, I, I am particularly fascinated by that book as somebody who I, I'm just very interested in kind of religion and, and social movements and the psychology that leads people to, to vote, devote themselves to them. And I thought that he wrote about that in a very kind of searching uh, way that um, is difficult. You know, it's easy writing about Scientology to go for the easy punchlines and go for the cliches. And I, I thought that book was just wonderful in uh, getting beyond that. Having said that, what is your faith tradition, and are you active in any faith congregation? Uh, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school until I was um, in eighth grade, uh, but I'm not currently practicing. Uh, why not? Uh, just sort of, I think, um, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and I grew up in, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s, and I went to a Catholic school where it was more, um, I, 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 I say this is the caveat that it was a wonderful school and everybody there was very devoted to their faith and I'm grateful for the education I had there. And maybe this uh, speaks more to my life experience, but it wasn't really intertwined with sort of um, the community life as, as I myself and my family experienced it. So once I stopped going to the school, it sort of just uh, faded out of my life. 
So you don't believe in the truth, the objective truth of the Catholic teaching, you know, lesson first in the Baltimore Catechism, we are here to know, love, and serve God. That's not not true? Uh, well, not, not, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, sec, a secular liberal. Uh, you've, uh, uh, you, you, you've nailed down my GPS there. Are you an atheist or an agnostic? Um, I would say I'm... <laughs> I would, I would probably, yes, I would say I'm an atheist. All right. Uh, was Alger Hiss a communist spy? <laughs> I, uh, I don't feel confident saying that either way. I, I have to uh, go back and uh, do a little bit more uh, revisiting of my, my Cold War reading before I feel confident answering that. Do you know anything about Alger Hiss? I do, yeah. Uh, the, the sort of vague outline of the story, yes. Give it to me, just so the audience can know what you know about Alger Hiss. It's an interesting, I, it's a tactic I use with every first interview for a reason. It GPSs your history. What do you know about Alger Hiss? Was accused, uh, it was Kirk who was accused of being a communist spy by Whitaker Chambers in, in his famous book. Am I, am I close to the mark here? Yeah, they're pretty close, yeah. Okay, uh, and... That's about all I know. <laughs> okay, okay, go read up on fascinating. It is a uh, dividing point in American history between people who are serious about history and those who are serious about ideology. And those who tremble at the question typically are more on the ideological side. And those who are concerned with facts know he was, in fact, a spy. It's been proven beyond reasonable doubt after the fall of the Soviet Union release of the intercepts. Have you read Boys in the Boat? I have not. Okay. Um, anyone in your family in the military? Uh, yes, my youngest brother is a former. He actually just ended his term in the uh, Marines. Oh, thank you for his service. Uh, where did he serve? Um, he was on. <laughs> he works in intelligence, so uh, that was not really. I was not really privy to that information for most of his term. <laughs> uh, is he an uh, enlisted man or an officer? Uh, enlisted. And three, four years, six years, eight years. How long did he go? He, it would be four, yeah, because right. he he went he should went to boot camp in the late uh, twenty sixteen. Did he do, was he West Coast or East Coast Marine? Do you know West, West Coast? So he went through uh, Marine Corps Depot in San Diego. I believe so. Yes. Did he deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan? I do not know. You don't know if your brother deployed? <laughs> like I said, I, I I oh I mean in like a combat setting, no. Uh, okay, I'm uh, I'm curious. Uh, where are you in the birth order? Are there just I'm two the of you? No, there are four of us, and I'm the oldest. Uh, uh, girls or all boys? Uh, three boys and one girl. All right, that's a good mixture. Uh, do you own a gun? No, I do not. Ever own a gun? Uh, no, but I know how to use them. I was raised in a very uh, outdoorsy uh, household. You're ahead of me. I don't know how to use them. Who'd you vote for in 2020? Uh, I voted for Biden. How about 2016? Uh, Clinton. 2012? Uh, Obama. 2008? Obama. And that was my first election. Okay, you, you cut me off there at the pass, so you, you didn't vote before that. Um, who are the five senators who you think most closely resemble Derek's point of view? <sighs> That's a good question, because you're getting pretty approximate. I, uh, uh, I'm a fan of Senator Michael Bennett. Um, I'm a fan of... Uh, Elizabeth Warren on many things. Um, I <sighs> going farther down the list. I uh, I've always 
To me, there's a difference between sort of admiring uh, a politician for qualities and being ideologically aligned with them. And uh, I'm not sure exactly where I, um, you know, I admire Cory Booker, but I don't know if I'm close to him sort of ideologically. Uh, hmm. This probably isn't great radio as I have in Hall. No, it's wonderful radio. <laughs> Terrific radio. <laughs> it, it, uh, let me let me, if you've got three uh, in sure. Booker, Warren, and Bennett, so we can skip on. Do you support abortion rights? Yep. Uh, at what point do you believe the state ought to limit or preclude abortions? I'm I'm not educated enough to answer that question in, in the specifics. Um, you know, I, I I think that there are obviously uh, issues with very very late stage procedures, but I, I I wouldn't venture to decisively say anything in that vein. Uh, are you familiar with the Dobbs case the court will hear on December 1st? Uh, I'm not. Uh, okay. Are you familiar with any of the abortion case law? Uh, I mean, the, the basics that most people are familiar with, uh, Casey, Roe, et cetera. And what do you think they stand for? Um, philosophically? Uh, and who, do you, who are you referring to? Do you mean... Uh, no, I mean, what, what, are the whole, what do you think the law is in the United States when it comes to abortion? Oh, I understand. Um, I well, technically, uh, if I remember correctly, Roe is based on a sort of uh, convoluted sort of privacy uh, idea that undermines it somewhat legally. Uh, yeah, that was that. That's my understanding of, of the law specifically as it, as it, as it relates to abortion. Um. Do you know the difference between the federal laws and the state laws on the subject? I know you're not a lawyer. I get that. But yeah. generally, you write about this. Do you have any idea what the different roles of the state and the federal government are? I've, I've never written about abortion, to be clear. <laughs> okay. Um, do you have any children? No, I don't. Okay. Uh, does big tech present a problem in the United States? If so, how? Uh, my qualms with tech tend to be related to their... Um, the influence they have over people's personal lives and the kind of incompatibility. I, I think that it's social media as it currently exists is sort of incompatible with psychological flourishing. And I think that their economic incentives um, is to, uh, is it, totally incompatible with, with fixing that in any way. Um, do I believe that the government has a role to play in, Fixing that, I'm, I'm not so sure. I tend to lean more toward the libertarian side on that question. What is the psychological fallout of big tech that you just alluded to? Well, I think that just removing the, the compulsion, that there are two sides to this. One of them is more kind of airy, and the other one is has a direct political balance. Psychologically, I think it just removes people from the presence of, of their daily lives, um, makes them feel less connected to their immediate community and people around them, and sort of leaves people constantly craving the dopamine hit that comes with the notification, et cetera. Uh, politically, I think any I was, I was just having a conversation with my friend and Politico colleague, Jack Schaefer, about this, uh, where he sort of challenged me on the idea in what I thought was a compelling way. But I, uh, I, I think that social media tends to promote or inherently encourage the most kind of reductive emotion-based content possible. I was talking to Jack about this, and he mentioned to me that he had just done a um, uh, some research and found that on cable news, 
Um, you know, Fox tends to talk about Democrats far more than they talk about Republicans, and MSNBC tends to do vice versa. So maybe, you know, that's that's an anger-related valence as well, anger and outrage-related. So maybe it's not totally exclusive to social media. Have you read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana uh, Rubin of the Harvard Business School? I have not. Uh, okay. Uh, read anything about big tech? Any books big in your head about big tech? Um, Franklin Thor's World Without Mind, um, I really enjoyed. It was very influential to my thinking about this. That's that's the most recent one I can think of. I've been meaning. It's to a fine book. That. It's the only yeah. book on which Secretary Clinton and I agree when I talked to her about her book, What Happened. We both agreed Franklin Thor needed to be read by everyone. Have you read anything by Stanley McChrystal or James Stavridis? I have not. Uh, do you read Daniel Silva, Brad Thor, Chuck Box, any thriller writer? Uh, no, not really. Who are your favorite writers? My favorite writers, my favorite uh, fiction writer and novelist is probably Martin Amos, the British writer. Um, I really deeply enjoyed the new Jonathan Franzen novel. Um, I am a huge fan of Patricia Highsmith in her novels. Um, yeah, those are, the, those are the big ones that come to mind. What daily newspapers do you read? I mean, on a daily basis. Uh, usually the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and uh, Politico. You don't read The Post? Um, occasionally if something, you know, crosses my feed, but it's not one of my morning links. Uh, do you subscribe to any foreign periodicals or newspapers? Um, I read the spectator occasionally. I read the economist. Um, I, I don't subscribe to any of them uh, and, and read them daily though. What do you watch on television or streaming? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I just started watching the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm last night, uh, and have been very much enjoying that. Um, I'm, I'm a terrible TV watcher. My, my friends are always frustrated with me about this because I, I've, I'm never prepared for the water cooler conversations. I tend to have a few shows that I stick to with my, my home bases and don't really venture too far outside that. Um, I was just watching, I just finished watching uh, Big Little Lies, the first season, which came out, I think, four years ago. So that should explain to you uh, how, how recent I am on TV. What water cooler do you gather around? I guess it would be Twitter, isn't it? Sort of in this age, uh, <laughs> as a as a self employed person now, there is no literal water cooler. Uh, so, yeah, you know my the various group chats that I have with my friends, uh, you know, talking to them on the phone, uh, being on social media. That was, I guess, sort of a virtual water cooler. Okay, so you're 31, right? 32. 32. Was the invasion of Afghanistan after 9/11 a good idea? <sighs> I think. You know, I, it's hard to say no, given you know, the, the, the function that Afghanistan served as a sort of springboard for uh, terrorism in that era uh, and, you know, the many warning signs that were ignored in the run-up to 9-11. But um, I, I think pretty much almost every single thing that happened after that initial invasion was, was incorrect and a bad idea. What do you make of the return of the Taliban to, to power and the exit of American forces from Afghanistan? Well, I think it's I think it's a tragedy. Um, I think it was an avoidable tragedy, but I also believe in uh, sunk cost theory, and I think that uh, the Biden administration, on balance, probably made the right decision in declining to commit American resources to, to something that in its current state would have, I don't know, taken a decade or maybe more to, to build a viable Afghan civil society after 20 years of already being there. Do you care about women's rights? <laughs> yes, 
I think that's why I'm very chagrined by the rise of the Taliban. What do you think life is like in that country right now? Uh, strange, not not great. Uh, certainly, nothing resembling the liberal civil society that uh, that we tried to construct there. Do you think it has anything at all to do with the West? Um. Well, I I I tend to lean on the more I tend to be you know this is probably going to be surprising to you saying I, considering how I just said that I supported the Biden administration's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, but I tend to be more on the internationalist side of the the liberal coalition. And, you know, I I think it is a net positive for there to be more flourishing liberal civil societies throughout the world. Um, It would have been nice if we accomplished that goal there, but we did not. And I don't think at this point in time, it's our business to, to go in there and spend another 10 years ensuring that they have one. Is there a genocide underway in China? Uh, yes, yes, I, I firmly believe that. And how many people do you think it's going to take? I, I don't. Unfortunately, I, I would, can't really venture a guess. The numerical guess to that question. I think that um, the cross pressures that America faces on China are vexing. And I've written about this in the context of the NBA. I wrote an article that was fairly harshly critical of the NBA and uh, LeBron James in the wake of Daryl Morey's comments about Hong Kong a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know what it will take. I think it would take some kind of egregious public-facing um, incident or, you know, shocking report, some kind of, uh, you know, these are not characteristically the same, but like a Pentagon Papers-level information dump of atrocities in order to, um, you know, mobilize people against this in the way that Maybe you saw people mobilized against apartheid globally in the 80s. Uh, do, have you been following Enos Cantor? Yes. Yeah, I'm a big fan of him. Uh, and so have you been following LeBron's silence in response to Enos Cantor? Uh, well, yes, in so much as I'm aware that he hasn't said anything. I'm sure that, um, yeah, it's it's almost... it. It's sort of an outgrowth of Michael Jordan's uh, Republicans by sneakers to philosophy, uh, you know, the don't rock the boat philosophy. But this one has much, obviously, much more grave human rights implications. Um, would athletic silence in the face of knowledge of the Holocaust in 1944 have been acceptable? Uh, no. <laughs> so is athletic silence in the face of the 2021 at, uh, Holocaust acceptable? I mean, in the face of what's happening in China, no. I, I've written about this. I actually, I wrote an article. Uh, I wrote an article for Politico magazine in July that some people sort of misinterpreted as. I, I wrote about it in the context of the release of LeBron's uh, Space Jam movie, where I I kind of made the point that, you know, if all of the sort of kowtowing to and being silent in the face of uh, purity in China is so that we can create a safe global marketplace for products like this, which, which are totally content-free and uh, you know, just like inert pieces of culture, then, then what's the point of the entire endeavor? Um, I, yeah, I, I don't think that is an acceptable or sort of viable stance to take as a, as a professional athlete, especially when you, you know, stake your claim as a, as a civic leader on several other issues. Should athletes go to China for the Olympics? Um, yes, I, I think so. Uh, should companies sponsor the Olympics? Um, I think that's a trickier question. I personally would not, um, you know, if I were the Fortune 500 company, um, having the sort of, yeah, I, I wouldn't 
yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that's a good idea generally. Why not? Um, because you're, you know, you're profiting over a host from, you know, the largesse of a host state that is involved in, you know, uh, terrible atrocities. I, I think it's incredibly problematic. That uh, it's sort of like, you know, the Afghanistan issue where it's such a the extent to which American economics are entrenched with China is so goes back so many decades and is so uh, intransigent that it, it's hard to think of a way out aside from complete divestment. Obviously, complete divestment was easier from a military standpoint in Afghanistan than it would be economically in China. Uh, but it's you know the extent to which you want to be associated with the Chinese state is obviously something that I, corporations need to think. Uh, long and hard about, and I think will be increasing in, in, in coming years. Should NBC broadcast the Olympics? Um, yes. Yes, I, I believe so. Should NBC have broadcast the Berlin Olympics in 1944? Um, well, I... Well, you have to think about the relative impact of such a thing, where you know, the reason you ask me, should NBC broadcast the uh, the Beijing Olympics, and I would say yes, because I think that a broadcast can, you know, highlight potential activism by athletes, um, bring more cultural context to light about the host nation, educate people. Um, I, I don't think that it's, I don't think that a media blackout is, is the answer. I, I think that engaging and using the platform of engagement in order to raise awareness of these issues is, is important and is better than the alternative. Do you expect any NBC announcer to raise the genocide issue? Oh, I don't know if they'll put it in those terms. Um, and actually, probably no. But I, I think it, there can still be a net positive um, in that conversation being out in the open. You know, the, the NBC announcers are not the end-all, be-all of the discourse around the Olympics in China. It's going, there's going to be, you know, Hacks like me are going to be out there. The uh, now, stop for that. What, you use the term hack self-deprecatingly, <laughs> but that term is thrown around. What is a hack? Oh, okay. So, sincerely, if you ask me what my definition of a hack would be, I think, it would, I think a hack is somebody who uh, leans on uh, their ideological priors without engaging with the issues that they're essentially writing about in good faith. And uh, furthermore, I think you gain special hack status if there's a clear cynical element to it, which, uh, you know, enriches you or benefits you personally in some way. Okay, so give me some examples of hacks. <sighs> I, I defer. I defer. I'm not, I'm not going to. Why? Because I, number one, because I truly can't think of any off the top of my head. And number two, because I, I, I'd rather not just make a personalized attack on somebody. I'd rather let my work speak for itself. I'm curious, though, by using the term without tethering it to individuals, is it not, in fact, more dangerous as a term, more blanketed over more individuals? Derek? Um, so you're saying that by creating a sort of big category of, of hacks, it becomes a sort of rhetorical tool. In its now, you gave a very good definition of hack. I very rarely inject my views into an interview. You gave a very sure. good definition of hack. Uh, very few people can. I think it was spot on. Hmm. Who does that? I, again, I'm going I'm to defer from naming anybody directly because I, I just don't feel like that would be uh, productive or I, I, I'm not really a combative. I, I, I try to be combative in my writing and not in my 
social media media appearances. Uh, okay, let, let me let me rephrase the hack definition so we can agree that I heard you correctly. Sure. An individual with a platform who deploys that platform either automatically as a knee-jerk reaction from an ideological preset or, and sometimes and, because he or she profits from that expression of a pre-existing ideological commitment, diverse from any facts that are being unfolding in front of them, predictably always in the same direction for the same economic advantage. Sure. And actually, because you, you rephrased that to me, back to me very well, and I think it, um, it, your phrasing it that way makes me realize why I am so reluctant to uh, name any specific person as such. And it's because that definition, I think even as I sort of defined it myself, I think it can be somewhat flawed in that it involves um, assumption of people's motives which is something that I think is, I think is kind of hacky in its own right. So maybe I was being self-deprecating for a reason. And that is why, as, as opposed to uh, attacking people for their motivations, which are ultimately unknowable, um, I think uh, I, I prefer to put it out on the page and use evidence as is in the public sphere in my writing, too. And I think that if you read my work, you will get a good, uh, I, I use the royal you, not you specifically, Hewitt, but you, uh, Hewitt, but you as well. I think you'll get a good sense of what I do and do not think is hacky. Yeah, I'm going to do a di deep dive into the bizarre mildness of Let's Go Brandon Fest in a moment, but the term hack is everywhere used and nowhere defined. And it's one of those terms that I think is a sort of a quiet slander of people with whom we disagree for reasons that are often not obvious when we ought to be obvious about the disagreements and specific about the targets, because not to be is to slander unknowingly. It's the Neiman Marcus case from Supreme Court. If you say everybody who works at Neiman Marcus is a prostitute, because there is one prostitute among the 10 people working at the Neiman Marcus, famous case, and I might have the facts a little bit off, you've slandered all nine who aren't, right? Does that, do you understand that? That's a little bit of law, but but sure. graduates yeah, should get that. So I just think the word hack is one of those words that set me going. Back to my questions. Was the invasion of Iraq a good idea? Uh, no, absolutely not. Why not? Because the evidence for it was completely faulty, and uh, it was just um, short-term short -term thinking at its finest. And I think the manner in which it was conducted was completely anathema to what the Bush administration's stated goals were. I think it was a debacle on every possible level. Uh, Nick Lehman, do you know who he is? Nick Wyman, uh, L-E-H-M-A-N-N, -N, former dean of the Columbia School of Journalism, great reporter for The New Yorker, oh, listed sure. all yeah. the reasons we went into Iraq, and there are about 10. But at the time that it happened, you were probably 13? Yes, I was a teenager. I was 14 years old. What did you think at the time we went in? I, I was opposed to it just because of a sort of knee-jerk teenage liberalism. All right, <laughs> but I, I think enough. my take has aged well. Do you believe that George W. Bush was sincere in his belief that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Um, yes, I believe that he probably was. I believe that given the evidence that he was presented by his trusted advisors, he, he was probably sincere in that. Is Iraq better off today than it was in 2001? We invaded in 2003. So I say 2002. Is Iraq better off today than it was in 2002? That's that's a very difficult question to answer. I, I uh, being somebody who is uh, committed to a sort of broad global anti-authoritarianism, um, it's hard to mourn at the end of the the, the Saddam Hussein, the Ba'athist regime. But uh, 
life today in Iraq is not exactly a cakewalk. And I think that for the average Iraqi, um, life is probably not better today than it was then. The most re- not the most recent, but the uh, second most recent season of Slate's Slow Burn podcast was a sort of lengthy reexamination of the walk-up to the Iraq war. And it ends on a very, very bleak note, noting how you know, chaotic and deprived much of Iraqi life is today. And I, I, that's a tragedy for all involved. Would a child born in Iraq in 1990 be better off than a child being born in Iraq in 2020? For most of their adult, yeah, for, for, for the intervening years of their life, yeah, I believe so. Really? What, what do you know about Saddam like Iraq, uh, Saddam era Iraq? Anything? I mean, the government was uh, essentially, it was, you know, insanely repressive, of course, and marked by uh, heady you know, proxy wars with neighbors, et cetera, his own dictatorial ambitions. But uh, having, there's, some, I believe there's something to be said on a quotidian level just for having a stable uh, government and knowing when your electricity is going to be on. Um, I think that in that sense that their life would be better. I, I think it would be deprived and, uh, you know, <laughs> horrible in many other ways. But it's kind of, you know, tr- forcing to choose between two incredibly unappetizing options. Okay, I'm, I'm almost to the end of my, my quiz here. Um, which part of the nuclear triad is most important? Uh, I'm, I'm not very educated on this, this uh, issue. I, I'm not really qualified to answer that question. Do you know what the nuclear triad is? Uh, I, I remember the uh, controversy. <laughs> most of the extent of my knowledge of the nuclear triad and, and its intricacies is uh, from your stumping Donald Trump on this question. So I guess I'm in company with uh, 45 here and not being able to answer it to your satisfaction. Or any satisfaction? I mean, yes, that's rather famous intervention. I've heard about it from the president for a long time, the former president. But I'm just curious. Do you just actually know what it is? Um, is the set of capabilities that we have to deploy uh, nuclear weapons, is that correct? Uh, close, but no cigar. Triad means three. The hint. Three types of nuclear weapons. Oh, sure. I, I, I couldn't name those for you. This is not really my forte. Okay. Um, what was your reaction to the launch by the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China of the hypersonic missile in July reported by the Financial Times? I thought that was pretty startling, obviously. You know, we have a, a, a nation that is so devoted to or a national sort of security apparatus that is so devoted to funneling money toward defense technology and uh, getting beaten to the punch on that by the Chinese state is is something that I think is uh, should be vaguely should be not vaguely specifically alarming to pretty much everybody. If you don't know what the triad is, how can you be alarmed by the launch of one missile? Well, it's technology that we don't have, right? So I think it's it's part of part and parcel of the uh, phenomenon of of China being able to sort of eat our lunch on this. And so, how do we deter China? That's really what I'm building to. How do we? De- it's the number one issue in my mind right now, above everything else. Is what do we do about the Chinese Communist Party and and specifically General Secretary Xi, and the genocide he is conducting and the weapons he is building and the weapons that he possesses? What do we do about that? Well, I think that the best way for America to deter sort of uh, the autocratic Chinese state becoming a, a serious world rival and, uh, you know, cementing their influence globally is to be a more, to be a better rival to them, to be a more prosperous, to be a more technologically advanced, to be a more 
civically functional country, and we've been doing an incredibly poor job of that for the past several years. And I, uh, I, I think that the best way to deter China is to govern this country appropriately and, and make it as prosperous as it can be. How does that deter China? Uh, well, I mean, in the geopolitical sphere, you the, the more appealing an ally America becomes, the, the less uh, China's influence, uh, you know, it becomes appealing for to kowtow to them and to various other autocrats who sort of ride their coattails in the Eastern Hemisphere. Why is that the case? Why is what the case? That they would that they would come to us if we were prosperous, that they would kowtow us to China if we were prosperous. Are we going to give them barrels of money? Is that what you think? Um, I mean, no, but the more America has sort of credible economic, military, uh, diplomatic power, um, they just from a, a sort of crude, uh, zero-sum mindset, it uh, becomes more, you know, aligning with Western powers, aligning with America, the more appealing that is compared to aligning with China, the more okay. uh, the okay, weaker China fair. is. In the, uh, in, the, in the mind of Derek Robertson, is there a difference between autocratic and totalitarian? Ah, that's a good question. Um, well, yes, I, I guess autocratic uh, autocracy would be centered more in the, um, you know, it's hard to have autocracy without an autocrat. I think there can be totalitarianism in a more collectivized uh, system. Um, autocracy, I, I suppose I would characterize it as more individualized. Uh, I'm not following you on that. What is the difference, do you think, between autocracy and totalitarianism? Uh, just characterologically, off the top of my head, I think autocracy uh, would be more centralized in the, the hands of a single autocrat. Uh, for example, you think of a, a state like um, Belarus, where Lukashenko sort of holds uh, individualized power over so many different aspects of, of civic and public life, whereas a totalitarian regime can be one that is more uh, uh, less driven by an, an individual. Is, uh, is China a Marxist-Leninist state? Uh, well, in, in name, um, or they, they profess to be a, uh, I guess they've, in so much as they profess to be a communist state, but there's not, aside from high levels of state control, there isn't much uh, economically communist about the way Chinese society is constructed. Okay, this gets into Piketty and other things, but I, I just want to take a stab at it. Define Marxist-Leninist for me, if you can. Again, your worldview will uh, evidence itself in that definition. Uh, well, I think Marxist-Leninist thought is the tool of um, communism that influenced the rise of the Soviet Union and uh, defined by a collectivist uh, approach to economics, proletariat ownership of uh, the public sphere, Um state control over commerce, et cetera. Uh, and what about on the world? What do they believe about where history is going? Uh, the inevitability of sort of the proletariat uprising and um, the... It, it, it's a, it's a world, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a worldview that believes that capitalism is ultimately doomed to fail and that you know work, workers of the world will unite and uprise and overthrow them. Close enough. All right. Uh, domestically, uh, or just generally, what's the greatest threat to America? Domestically, um, I think the I think the greatest uh, domestic threat to America is the delegitimization of, of elections and uh, the unwillingness to accept election results that uh, 
that many Republicans have shown over the past several years. Many being what percentage? Well, that's a great question. It's something I sort of tried to get at in, in the piece that I wrote. Um, I, I just, my read on this situation is that I, I think there is a small activist base um, that is that believes they can gain traction within the Republican Party by essentially refusing to accept the loss of any close election. I, I don't know if I would. I don't really know enough about the inner workings of, of the GOP or have sort of a totalized national picture of this to sort of confidently put a percentage on it. Like it's a, obviously a complex set of interlocking parties and or not parties, but sort of um, groups, advocacy groups, state uh, nonprofits, et cetera, like the Michigan Conservative Coalition, which I wrote about here. Um, but I, I, I think it is a, a minority group of highly activated people who uh, can think they can enrich and empower themselves by pandering to people who, uh, you know, the sort of average Republican voter who goes on Facebook and reads on their Stop the Steal page that uh, the election results were tainted in some fraudulent way and, and therefore, uh, you know, they become one of their minions and that, that, that empowers those Republicans politically. And I think but you don't you don't have a you don't have an estimate of what percentage of the Republican Party are so aligned. Um, no, I don't. I mean, I, okay. I, I think I'm, I'm more interested in talking about individual cases. Uh, are you familiar with the Constitution? I mean, did they study the Constitution at Medill? Uh, we had a media law class, but uh, we I, I went there for grad school, so we didn't have sort of a, a full uh, legal course. Do you know how many amendments there are to the Constitution? Uh, 27. Good. Do you yeah. uh, think the Electoral College is a good idea or a bad idea? I am opposed to it. I, I think it is a bad idea. Why? I just, the, I, I don't, I, I'm of the kind of garden variety liberal view that um, I don't think that there's any inherent, I, I don't think that there's inherent, any inherent value in assigning extra representational um power to land um, disproportionate to the amount of people who actually populate it. I have similar feelings about the Senate, although I'm not in favor of abolishing the Senate, as many of my progressive friends are. Well, uh, the Senate is the most wildly unrepresentative body in the world, uh, in the world of American politics, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it has a counterbalance, you know, in, in the House, and it plays a specific deliberative role, or at least it's supposed to, that I think uh, redeems it slightly above the Electoral College, at least in my eyes. What, what is the aim of the entire constitutional order, in your opinion, Derek? <sighs> uh, is, it, <laughs> is it too cliche to say to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of human happiness? <laughs> no, it's not a cliche if you believe it. I mean, yeah, do you believe did, yeah. that, that uh, some people think the Constitution is, in critical theory, not critical race theory, but larger critical theory, is a facade for the exercise of power by the powerful and the already influential over those who are not. Do you believe that? No, I don't. I, this, you know, this makes me somewhat of an outlier, I think, among many of my friends on the left and who are my fellow liberals. But I, I, I do believe in you know, the, the basic sort of maybe this is because I studied <laughs> British history, but I, a, a sort of Lockean view of um, entering into a, a social contract where we all agree to certain basic, you know, the basic rule of law by which we create the maximum amount of liberty and flourishing for people in, independent of their individual characteristics. Yes, I firmly believe Your in professor that. Your professor has done well. 
Uh, let's go to the political, because that's it. Uh, the, the U.S. Constitution is about the preservation of individual liberty. And the Electoral College figures in that, as does the Senate. Do you know the Senate is the only thing that cannot be amended? Did you know that? I actually did not know that. Yeah, it's the only thing that by specific, you'd have to get rid of the Constitution to get rid of the Senate. Uh, you can't okay. amend the Senate away. Um, let's go to your magazine article, The Bizarre Mildness of Let Go Brandon. By the way, I listened to the realignment pod uh, with you and Sagar and Marshall. I want to get them on. Use the term barstool conservatism. Did you trademark that? Is that original to you? No, it's not. Um, I, I've, I've sort of gone out of my way to give credit to uh, a writer I admire who's uh, ideologically very distant from me, but who's writing I really enjoy. A writer named Matthew Walter who used to write for The Week and uh, is, is now writing for various magazines and working with The Lamp, a conservative magazine, a Catholic conservative magazine. But he... He wrote an article about it from the, the perspective of uh, this is this is my jumping off point. He wrote about it. His conception of this is basically the Republican Party is going in a secular direction uh, that is not um, necessarily that welcomes you know evangelicals, Catholics, social conservatives into its coalition, but is not completely beholden to social conservatism or social conservative orthodoxy. Uh, and I, I wrote about it, and he inspired me to think about the, the greater ecosystem of, of barstool republicanism and the extent to which it is fundamentally an attitudinal approach to politics, uh, just sort of a, a combative Roy Cohn-like uh, unrepentant um, rhetorical approach more than any set of policies or you know, sort of ideological commitments. Did you impose that? presupposition on the gathering you covered, or did that come out of the gathering that you covered? Uh, you know, do you mean what's a Brandon Fest? Yes. I didn't think about this that much when I was at Let's Go Brandon Fest, and I think that that was because I, I tend to associate barstool conservatism, and maybe I shouldn't, but I tend to associate it more with um, younger conservatives. And the demographic at this event was it, it skewed older. The area skews older. Um, do, do you know, by the way, how big Ortonville is? How many people live there? It's very tiny. It's an incorporated township within Brandon Town. It's an incorporated village, excuse me, within Brandon Township. But I don't know what the exact population is. I know it's very small. Do you know the uh, the population of Brandon Township? It's something like 14,000. Is that correct? 16,000 as of uh, 2018. Do you know what its ethnicity makeup is? It's almost entirely white. Correct, 95.8% white. Do you know its education levels? Uh, I have to, I would have to say less than college prevailingly. Uh, 95% have um, high school education and 28% have a college degree. Do you know what the median household income is? If I were to venture a guess, I would say something around is it 60,000? It's 90,000. You're off by 30,000. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 50%. <laughs> I suspected it might be a little uh, a little higher than, than I was guessing, but I was trying to sort of lean into the averages. Okay, now now I'm going to get a little rougher with you here, Brandon, uh, and sorry for that. In fact, Derek, um, was your article fact-checked by Politico magazine? Um, I don't believe for web article, for, for this one, no. Uh, I, I mean, I... <laughs> to fact check it myself. I, I don't believe it went through a formal fact checking process. It didn't. It couldn't have. Uh, you refer to the Michigan Conservative Coalition as the, quote, top right wing activist group in the key swing state of Michigan. 
How big is the Michigan Conservative Coalition? I don't know how many people are in it, but that's a characterological description. I, I, I say I describe it as the top right wing activist group because of the influence of uh, former leaders, the Maddox, who are incredibly influential in, in Republican GOP politics. And that group is, although they don't lead it anymore, it's sort of inescapably their child. And I, I think that gives them you know, a, a leverage over Michigan uh, Republican politics that is, is, is not uh, rivaled uh, in many other places. The evidence for that is not in the article, is it? Um, no, I mean, it depends a little bit on your knowledge of Michigan. <laughs> I, I know a lot about Michigan, not only having attended law school there, but by talking weekly with the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn. Do you know how big sure. the, Michi- the Hillsdale College Republican Club is? I, I would imagine it's quite large. Quite larger than the Brandon Fest. Um, how many people were there? Uh, I estimated that it was about 100. I think it maybe could have been more at its peak. The weather was pretty rough. And you talked to 10 of them, correct? Uh, rough, yeah. About so of the 10 of the 100 from that, of, of those 10, two of them were LaRoucheites, correct, from California? Yes, that is correct. And two of them are middle-aged men, one from Brandon, one from Lake O'Brien, huddled under a massive thin blue line flag on a preposterously tall flagpole. Uh, yes. That's a direct quote. How massive was the flag? Well, it was not uh, blowing in the considerably stiff, wi- stiff wind that was out there. So it, it was <laughs> quite large and heavy. It was, uh, I, would, I would say, about a third of the length of the flagpole, if I had to estimate from my uh, memory. Can you give me a foot-by-foot foot estimate? I'm not a great spatial reasoner. Okay. Um, how tall was the pole, which you said was preposterously tall? Uh, I guess I would say it was... 30, 40 feet tall. And why preposterously? Um, I, it's, it's, it's a word with a little more verve than, uh, than very. Um, I thought it was preposterously tall in proportion to the man uh, who it dwarfed. Okay. Um, State Senator Colbeck played to whoops and cheers using apocalyptic rhetoric. Again, these are direct quotes. How can a crowd of 100 have whoops and cheers? I mean, did they really whoop and cheer? Yes, of course they did. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was giving them red meat. Uh, and I think uh, most of the intense cheering, you know, this is the point I try to make with the article, it comes from uh, the people who are most engaged, not the, the hot dog munchers or the people who are just coming to see a, a curio down the street. But uh, yes, he, he, he activated the crowd. Not as much as Ricky Bobby, but he activated them. But there's 100 people. I mean, 100 people can fit in my studio if we get tight. I mean, how I really don't. I disassociate whipping and cheering with a hundred. You know, a hundred people at a basketball game can barely echo in a gym. But that's all relative. This is the entirety of the park. Uh, this is, you know, three people can assemble and whip and cheer. This is, this is totally relative. This is kind of a rival version. I, I, I don't think it is, but we'll leave it up to listeners. Let me ask you about the apocalyptic rhetoric used by the former state senator. An example, please. Oh, it was kind of boilerplate election theft rhetoric about how, you know, past Republicans have failed us in not. Um, I mean, this is this is the kind of rhetoric that is used on the right and the left, basically saying we let them steal this one. If we let them steal the next one, uh, there's not going to be another one after that. Um, that's, you know, that is a, as when it comes to relative to our democracy, uh, I, I feel pretty safe characterizing that as apocalyptic. 
All right. Now, you said there were active, as the apocalyptic usually means end times and uh, convulsions and revolution and armed rebellion and the sort of things. I've heard apocalyptic rhetoric. I don't like it. It's it's ridiculous. It's absurd. But I'm not sure. I, I think I might have quoted it if I were you and writing for effect. It might have been useful to have quoted it. You did say that the activists were peddling the rankest bottom of the iceberg conspiracy theories about the 2020 election and collecting petitions for ballot initiatives. So they were operating within the law to try and change the law, correct? Some of them, yes. I mean, it was the people, uh, the, oh, what was that man's name? There was a there was a sort of doctor there who was handing out uh, promotional material for kind of stop the steal rhetoric, one of which I actually have in my hand right now. Um, but, you know, those are different people from those collecting petitions. Uh, there was a there was a gubernatorial candidate there attempting to get on the ballot as well. Uh, people have different aims. But uh, the the main uh, stage, as it, as it were, was home to the, the election fraud conspiracies. So they were collecting petitions. They were whooping and sharing to apocalyptic rhetoric. A hundred people shivering in the cold and you talked to 10 of them. Yes. So. Uh, a couple of these are Larushites, by the right way. And, you know, Larushites go wherever there are four people gathered. They, if you gather four people in their name, a Larushite will show up. Have you followed them ever? Do you know who they are? Oh, yeah. I, I'm uh, in keeping with my, like I described when we were talking about going clear earlier, uh, in keeping with my fascination with sort of cultish groups like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Larushites. All right. So there are two men in Proud Boy regalia asserting, and then you write, quote, presumably asserting their maleness by toughing out the inclement weather. Did you talk to them, Derek? No, I didn't. Why not? Because I, I was essentially, I was leaving at that point. I didn't think it would be very productive to talk to them. I personally find, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. I, I find it almost, uh, I, I don't do a lot of event coverage, but when I do, I don't really enjoy talking to people who are there in sort of their, their game colors, as it were, whatever those are, because they tend to have the least interesting things to say. You can pretty much guess what, uh, you know, Something like that is going to say based on what they're projecting into the world. And I didn't think it would be particularly productive for the piece. I also didn't think it would be representative of the piece. I mean, you're sort of, I can, I can tell, I can feel your implicit criticism that I didn't talk to enough piece to draw an accurate picture of what this uh, festival was. But it would have been even more inaccurate if I uh, centered the Proud Boys who represented, you know, a small, small sliver of uh, the attendees to this event. Well, I don't know if they were Proud Boys. That uh, proud, proud boy regalia is not described. I have no idea what it is. I, I don't know any proud boys. I've never met any proud boys. I don't want to meet any proud boys, but I have no idea what proud boy regalia is. Does it say proud boy buttons or something? Yeah, it's a it's a vest, black and gold. Their colors that those proud boys and has many proud boys badges on it. So they did have on an actual identifier. Yes, that's right. Were you afraid of them to talk to them? No, no, I just didn't think it would be very useful. I've, I have talked to some before. It wasn't particularly pleasant, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't fearful of them. There is a mother and a teenage son as well, correct? Yeah. So the mother and the teenage son, why were they there? They lived down the street and just sort of wandered down to see what the, what the hubbub was about. Okay, so on this basis, do you think any valid theory can be put forward about the state of politics in Oakland County, much less Michigan, much less the United States? I mean, yes, I think the, the point I was trying to posit with this piece is that um, you, have a, you have an organizing principle over a slogan, a piece of agitprop, like Let's Go Brandon. 
you put on a spectacle, it draws all kinds of different people. Not all draws a hundred people. people. Draws a hundred people. Not all of them are committed ideologues. Um, not some of many of them are conservative. Almost everyone I talked to was. Um, but, you talked to ten people of a hundred. So how? I, I really am now drilling in my Medill professor, which I am not. How can you draw any conclusions about a hundred by talking to ten? And even if you talk to a hundred, how can you draw any conclusions about the county or the movement? Well, I'm very lucky that I have editors who trust my editorial judgment here and are aware no. that I'm writing an interpretative magazine piece and not sort of a not writing a Reuters article here. This is my analysis of an event and how uh, you know, bread and circuses can can bring people into a system. Uh, you know, this is the thesis of my piece: is that this event is a spectacle, and the people who are attending it are mostly fairly mild, hence the bizarre mildness of Let's Go Brandon Fest. But it's put on for what I think is a fairly insidious purpose. And I think that's an important lesson to be learned about politics in, in the Trump era, which is that isn't, the, isn't the lesson that nobody came. It's a, I mean, it's bad weather. I mean, you can get 100 people. I can get 100 people in about an hour. Uh, you know, if I say on on a Snapchat call for action on on a Twitter, let's get you get 100 people at the mall. And these are professional gatherers. I, I just really let me go to the key line because we're running low on time, Derek. I appreciate it. This rally, quote, or this event featured a parade of speakers and activists peddling the rankest spot on the of the iceberg conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, collecting petitions for ballot initiatives to tighten voter ID laws and restrict the state's ability to enforce public health measures, which is all typical conservative fare for 2021. Is it? Yes. I mean, I think that the, the extremes of it are not, but when you have, um, you know, a, I would say a majority of, uh, when you have even the most mainstream kind of milk toast Republicans circumspect about saying whether, for example, Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election, um, I think that conspiracy theory about election fraud has officially crossed over into the mainstream. And now, now there might be some very high profile people, including the former president who believe election fraud happened. Just none of them, no high profile person with whom I am acquainted. And I know the Uptons. I, I, I live in Michigan. I, I've talked to every Republican who met. I saw Ron McDaniel this week and the Hill. I mean, I know Michiganders. This is not representative of anything. And I talk to Larry Arn every week. This is we talk about Afghanistan's evacuation. We talk about China. We talk about inflation. We talk about an infrastructure bill, the build back better. We talk about tree equity. We talk about all sorts of things, mainstream conservative things. We do not talk about anything with LaRoucheites we do not have Rick Treadway there. We are not conspiracy theorists. I declared the election over the day after the election, actually the night of. And I think you imposed your desire to find barstool conservatism on that gathering, Derek. I, I mean, I respect that that's your take from it, but it's not what I did. I, uh, it's interesting. You mentioned sort of Larry Hearn. I, very, Larry Hearn. A-R-N-N. A-R-N-N. very yeah. learned and erudite man, and I'm I fascinated by, by Hillsdale and have several friends who went there and talked to them quite frequently and probably have fairly similar conversations to the ones you're describing. But I would argue that what happened on the campus of Hillsdale probably has less to do with Republican rank-and-file politics uh, than what was happening at Let's Go Brandon Fest. Oh, you're absolutely wrong. On this, I can speak with some authority since I have spent 
most of my 65 years as a member of the party, and I've never not voted for its candidate in a presidential election. And I talked to Cotton and, well, this morning I talked to Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, who's a fairly representative. None of these people could win any congressional office. None of them. I mean, you got Fred Upton up there. Uh, Michigan is actually kind of center right, normal Midwestern Republican like I am, Jim Rhodes Republican, Rob Portman Republican, would never elect anybody remotely. It's Ronna McDaniel. I mean, she's a sort of center right person who has made her peace with every element of her party. I just, I really think that you you, you got to get the spectacles off that you want to find. That now I'm, now I'm commenting on your commentary, why I was interested in it. Then I went and listened to you guys, Sagar, Marshall, and you talk about conservatism. And I thought, here are three talented young people who have no idea or experience of which they speak. I mean, I really, by the way, this is something I've thought a lot about. A, a phrase you used at least once in this article is a feature of that podcast, as is that's a really good question. You know how many times you use that thus far in our 45 minutes? Uh, no, I don't. Please mind me. Six times. Okay. Um, what do you think that says? There are no um, bad questions. I think it says that I'm trying to buy myself time to think. Exactly. To oh, God. Yeah. Self-awareness. Self-awareness. Very good. Um, that's exactly what it is. It's a crutch. It's a verbal crutch. And I correct everyone of it who uses it. Then I want to go to the key thing, uh, Derek. As a cultural critic, I'll never be out of work, which makes me feel conflicted. You said that to Sager and Marshall, did you not? Yes, I did. All right. Hey, I, I'm here to disappoint you. You will be out of work as a cultural critic. <laughs> there, oh, no. A, there, is a, there isn't that much demand for cultural criticism. How much you get paid for this Polico magazine piece? Oh, come on. Come on, Hugh. No, I mean, I'll tell you what I get paid for for a column for National Review. Nothing. I asked for a subscription for a year. Uh, They wanted me to write about abortion. Roe v. Wade, I got paid nothing. Did they pay you for this? (laughs) Yes, they did. Did they pay you a living wage? Do you have to turn out one of these a week? Maybe you don't want to tell me it's 50 bucks or 100. I don't know what the per word is. It's usually three cents a word or five cents a word. I don't know how Politico magazine pays for things, but is it enough to make a living off of? I'm able to support myself writing, and I don't really think that has anything to do with the substance of what I wrote in this article. No, it does. It has to do with the podcast. When you say you aspire to be a cultural critic, what is that? Somebody who observes culture and interprets it through my particular lens, frame of reference. That's uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, you know what criticism is. I don't know how you make a living at it. Well, I, I suppose I'm very lucky then. I'm, <laughs> no, but, I'm grateful well, I, that my editors hold me at high estimation, apparently. No, I'm genuinely serious. How do you plan to make a living doing this? Ross came out of Harvard, landed a great gig at the Times, and as he writes about in the deep places, is truly one of the one percenters, as I am, because I have a radio show and a podcast and people pay me to blather. I am curious how you expect to make a living doing this. I'm not sure uh, how relevant this is for our conversation, but I don't aspire to be a one percenter. I aspire to earn a living, and I'm doing a pretty pretty good job of it. Uh, Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. It it matters a lot because the world is filling up with young would-be cultural critics, and I'm questioning. I'm going to talk to Marshall and Sager as well as they come on. From what terrain do they write? You're 32. You don't have children. You have a girlfriend. You're not married. You've lived in Three states, as far as I can gather. Have you spent a lot of time abroad? Uh, I've been to the U.K., and that's actually it. I'm not as well-traveled as I wish I was. 
Uh, the United Kingdom is a good place to start. You're versed in British history, which is great for jumping off. But do you think you're qualified to be a cultural critic? Yes, yeah, so yes, I do. Why? Because I've consumed a, a vast amount of uh, culture, and <laughs> because I, I have a this is this is you know how you end up writing the articles that I do, how you end up writing the Let's Go Brandon Fest. I have a perspective on the world that is different from others in mainstream media, and people are interested in hearing it. I think that is the qualification to be a cultural critic. Okay, you don't believe that wide experience working in a number of different places, making a living, raising a family, and reading widely, extensively, endlessly before becoming Charles Krautheimer is necessary? I Charles was a all... cultural critic. Charles was I... one of the best. Oh, I completely agree. I think those are all salutary, uh, you know, those are all <laughs> positive experiences. I think that media, one of the few things I like about the digital media landscape is that it provides for a very diverse array of voices. And uh, I think it's important to have people in the arena who have, have not had a uniform uh, experience to the one you described. I think the one you described is very useful, and it qualifies someone to be a cultural critic like Charles Krauthammer very well. But um, I, I don't think that there's any kind of... Uh, you know, a, a, a sock you can pull over at the entire enterprise and, and fit it into. Well, I think there should be barriers to entry, and there aren't. Uh, there, this wasn't fact-checked. If, if they had sent this to New Yorker, you'd never gotten through. But not fact-checked. They pay you something you don't want to tell me. I don't know if it's small or large, but they pay you something. You're 32, and everyone who's 32 could write this article if they go back to their hometown, find a gathering of 100 people, and extrapolate from that. I, I disagree. I challenge my fellow 32-year-olds who, who are listening right now to, to do it. I would be pleased to read it if they did. There, you know, the the person who's closest to you, but he's very, very good at it, is Tim Alberta. And you know Tim, right? You follow I him. I do, yeah. 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 And Tim's mad at me currently, but sometimes he's happy with me. But But Tim worked in the vineyards for a while. Do you think we ought to have, you know, if to ride certain rides at Disney, you have to be so tall. Do you think there is a prerequisite for opining on politics and being taken seriously in the country? No, I think the work makes itself self-evident. I think that if you don't clear the bar for doing it, um, people won't read you and you won't get paid to do it. And uh, I think some people, you know, I we were talking earlier about hackery. I think it's, that's one easy path to to clearing it. Um, I, I, I feel like you're... Um, I'm judging your article, but not you. I think you're very well positioned to advance as a journalist, but you got to do a lot more work and oh, you need I, editors. I completely, and, I, I completely agree with that. And fact checkers. I, I, I didn't like the piece because I finished reading it and said, this will give someone who's never been to get Michigan a completely erroneous view of Michigan and of Republican politics in Michigan and of the Republican Party. But Derek, apparently you're, you're good with words. You can push them down against a verb with a great deal of dexterity, and I admire that. And I, I like the podcast. In fact, I've subscribed now to The Realignment. I thought it was a good conversation. But the language of therapy pervades it, not your therapy, but generally my feelings, get my arms around, headspace, that's a good question. It's not reporting, my friend. It's not analysis. There's very little data in this. Nobody knows about Oakland County or Brandon Township or the city, as name, I don't have my notes in front. Nobody knows anything on which they can rely after they read this. It, do they? What can they rely on? The characterization of a community that is deeply read and is kind of unified by cultural grievance more than they are, uh, at least in attending, in so much as they are going to attend this event, 
more than any concrete ideological commitment. I actually, this is, we were talking about this, and uh, I, I wanted to ask you a question, if you'll allow me. Uh, no, it's an interview, not a debate. I I'm, I'm, I'm just very curious as to what your, your take on this would be. Do you think that if I interviewed everyone at the Let's Go Brandon Fest, would more of them have been familiar with Mary Arn or Mike Lindell? Uh, Mike Lindell, certainly. Right. So that, this is, I only ask you this not to like to test you, but I, I, I'm trying to say that the cultural grievance or the fundamental uh, receptiveness to claims of election fraud that they are there that brings them to the event makes them susceptible to being activated by activists uh, such that's as it, the people in the MCC. That that's just that's completely speculative. There's no evidence for that in this, other than people were collecting petitions. I don't know how many. I don't know how many I signed it, but. My critique, and I want your response to this, and then we can, I hope you come back, by the way, Derek, you're a good guest. Population of Ortonville is 1,433. Brandon Township is 16,105. If you want people to extrapolate anything about Ortonville or Brandon Township on the basis of that, that is hackery. I don't think you're a hack, but that would be wrong and a slander upon those people who were, as you correctly speculate, Watching Michigan State get blown out in the most perfect football half I've ever watched, Ohio State, they didn't go. They rejected it by not being there. And the people who came drove across the state, some from California, had LaRoucheites. I mean, it, it, it's dispositive or representative. It's dispositive of nothing and representative of very little other than the 100 people who showed up. In fact, I would say that the organizers failed. Maybe I'm putting too much trust in my readers and believing this, but I, I believe in their ability to pick up on the broader theme of what I'm writing and not to uh, assume that I'm trying to make some blanket assertion about the people of Ortonville or Brandon Township, which is, is not the, uh, the point of the piece. I, I think you're actually trying to make a bigger picture about Republicans generally, which is even less fact-based than it is about Ortonville or Brandon Township. I mean, do you read Selena Zito? Excuse me, sorry. Do you read Selena Zito? Uh, occasionally, yes. I, yeah, yeah. She gets in her car. She goes around. She talks to people. She puts their name in. She gives you a background about them. She is a reporter who does analysis based upon her anecdotes. She never presumes that anecdotes are evidence of other than anecdotes, which they're not. She doesn't attempt absent giant data sets to extrapolate. That's the bridge here too far. Um, I think you imposed a desire to write for Politico about what you worry is going on on this. And, and it, it can't bear the weight, Derek. It doesn't doesn't stand up. OK, well, I, I appreciate, you know, that I, you're very established in that world and I appreciate your perspective on it. What are you going to write next? I don't know, actually. I've sort of come to the end of my docket and it's coming up to the end of the year. So I need to write a pitch memo to my editors and sort of figure out what I'm going to be working on in terms of short term, longer term end of year projects. I'm in a sort of refresh, refreshing phase. I have a suggestion. Please, Do you want ahead. it? I would get them to embed you in Ortonville. I would get them to pay you to live in Ortonville for the next two years because you began there. This is your first piece. And to learn the community and know the people and be able to tell me at the end of that, and the readers whether you were right or wrong in extrapolating from this rally about the people of Ortonville and to make claims that will be factually truth about whether or not we ought to. Because I think you represent both the potential and the danger of the future ahead, which is talent untethered to experience and conclusions 
unwarranted by evidence. And I think that's killing media. Uh, and if young people of talent, Medill graduates, I mean, that that's not anywhere about you. That means you know what you're doing or you should. If you populate the ecosystem after and I'm gone after another five to 10 years, I'm 65. This will be horrific, horrific for journalism if that's what it becomes. Do you, uh, do you get that I'm sincere about this? No, I, I fully believe in your sincerity. What about my project that I proposed to you? I think that would be. I, I, I think that would be an extremely enjoyable and interesting project. I, I doubt that I would. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I'm not sure if it's, it's what at this point uh, I'm going. I have the capacity to, to do with my time specifically, but uh, I think it would be a, a wise and salutary project. I think it would be very interesting. If they paid you to do it, would you do it? Sure. Yeah, I would. How much would they have to pay you? I don't know. I'd have to go look up the cost of living in Orangeville first. It's not very high. The average, the income is $90,000 a year. That's the median. So forty five grand. I, I looked up the apartment product. It's less than $1,000 a month for the average apartment in Ortonville. Okay. I, I, I would raise the price. I, you know, my, my, my benefactor, the Politico, just got acquired by a very wealthy German company. So I'd, I'd, I'd probably have to, uh, to, to raise the, the asking price there. Well, no, I, I'm serious. What I'm thinking about is we could crowdfund the brand, uh, the Derek project in Brandon Township. And I'm very serious because I think you would change completely. And then your talent would be tethered to an experience that would be educational. I mean, I will. If you want this, I will help you make it happen. So call me back and let me know. There's a book in it. There's a book in it. Derek goes to Brandon. There's a book there. Well, I, I, I actually, if there's one other note that I could make, I know we're coming to the end of our conversation, but uh, I'm wondering if you, uh, what you gleaned from the, what I wrote about in the article that I, I did grow up 10 miles from where Crawford Park is. I know. Well, I got that. I, I, I think it's astonishing that you wrote this about your own community, knowing as much as you did about your own community. I don't believe this is Ortonville. I don't believe it's Brandon Township. I don't believe it's Oakland County. I've run road races there. I went to law school down the road. I know the area pretty well. It was, you know, 40 years ago, so things change. I know it's demographics. I know it's economics. I just don't think it's even remotely close to the reality that you present. And I think you would come to that conclusion if you really reported it. Okay. I appreciate your feedback on that. And and let me know if you're going to do the crowdfunding. I'll help you, Derek. I, I, keep, call, I keep calling you Derek. I should say Derek Robertson, and I should give your Twitter handle, which is Derek underscore uh, – T I Derek score. I J sorry. Is that a J God? That's a horrible Twitter handle. Can you not do better than that Twitter handle? Not really. There, there are more Derek Robertson in the media than you might imagine. Well, you've got 2,844 followers. If you went with, uh, Derek Robertson 32, it would be easier to remember. This is impossible to get people to remember. Just a critic from a, a, you know, I help people with social media. Hey, my friend, you have a great Thanksgiving. Who are you spending it with? Uh, my family in West Michigan in Grand Rapids. Well, have a good time there. Do you know the good speeds over there, by the way? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, I went to law school with one of them. Thank your brother for his service. Uh, thank you for joining me. This will be at the interview with Hugh Hewitt, and I appreciate you. Have a great Thanksgiving. Check back with me, Derek. Thank you. Thank you, That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, 
then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. AndrewandTodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.